and welcome back to the Lightfoot Podcast. This week, I spend time with Jeremy Johnson, and he and I share an epic adventure of a discussion. We delve deep into the ideas of Jean Gibser and trace the contours of just how prescient the ideas in ever-present origin really were. We touch on the evolution of perspective throughout art history, the promising synthesis of the integral movement with cosmolocalism, and also the progressive legacy of Michael Brooks. There is poetry, complex ideas, concrete ideas, and I even have a go at pronouncing the 50-syllable long German word for the phenomenology of becoming consciousness. It was a real pleasure to spend some time in Jeremy's verdant newosphere. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So without further ado, I bring you Jeremy Johnson. So, Jeremy, welcome to the Lightfoot Podcast. It is lovely to be here with you. Likewise, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Very excited about this. Yes. So I wanted to start with uh, with some poetry. I've been reading your book, Seeing Through World, which is quite wonderful, I might I might say. I've I've really uh been going very deep into it. I find it's a it's a it's a piece of work uh that requires uh the kind of presence of uh of mind and heart that I usually reserve for kind of poetry. And so uh it's been refreshing for me to delve into this world of Gebserian ideas and and your own thoughts, uh, but doing it through the uh poetic turn of phrase with this kind of aesthetic artistic quality coming through it it's really delicious a nice welcome break from overly uh sort of intellectualized uh theory so i wanted to give the listeners a little taste and one way i've done that is is one of the writing uh mechanisms you have is you italicize words every now and again which adds a nice kind of emphasis and I just scanned over a group of them in a row and this kind of like the poem jumped out at me. So I, I want to share this is this, these words are all in a row. I'm going to add in four words myself. I'm putting in one extra behold as the, and one other the, and these other 10 words are, are all Jeremy's italicized points of, uh, of reference. So behold, diaphaneity as the integral wed one opens, fracturing a thousand plateaus, master the dramological Akira latency. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Joe, that, that is fantastic. And, 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 you know, one of the things that I think I'm, I'm deeply honored about with this is uh, Gebser himself was a poet and he sort of started out through the poetic, really. Um, so I'm so glad that came through. Right. I'm so glad that that came through in the way you described, like the way I wrote the book. It requires a poetic sensibility, so yes. I'm just very grateful, awesome. and that's awesome. That <laughs> I'm gives everyone, have to I mean, like retweet that or something when please, this finally comes out. What an amazing yeah, yeah. collection of words that you I, you haven't even like subconsciously you might have set that up, but that's a that's a pretty amazing little piece of thought and like kind of really does touch on a lot of, 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 of what you're up to and, and gives people a peek into your, into your mind. If I heard that, I'm like, I'm reading that book. So yeah, <laughs> jump into it guys. And I mean, continuing that thread a little bit. So a cultural philosopher, intellectual mystic, poet and scholar of the evolution of consciousness, 
Am I talking about Jean Gebser, a Polish Swiss philosopher in the 20th century of integral bent? Or am I talking about Jeremy Johnson, the modern day equivalent? And <laughs> it strikes me that, you know, you guys really are a harmonic of each other in different ways. And there's something really amazing about that. So maybe my first question to you is, when did you get Gebser pilled? I want to hone in on your experience of what happened when those ideas first landed on you, because I think that's quite a, a sacred thing. It's almost asking someone mm. to talk of their relationship with their with their guru or teacher to some degree. So when did it happen? How did it happen? And how did it feel when you first got a taste of, of a man that would really shape your own thinking? Wow, uh, Joe, you have some great questions. And, and I know this in context from our conversations on Clubhouse too. So um, <laughs> I love your questions. They're so they're so catalyzing. Uh, so with Gebser, I mean, I was, I was drawn to his work first, I'll tell you the moment, and I think I've said this in, in some conversations before, but the moment itself was on the train to Manhattan going into undergrad morning classes at Fordham University. So I was on the Long Island Railroad. I had taken the ever-present origin out of the library. And the context of this was I was reading Ken Wilber's work and Alan Watts and all sorts of folks who were writing about consciousness studies. I, I was definitely uh, off the beaten path mm. in undergrad and really going in that direction, particularly Wilber's work. Wilber's work was like a kind of portal to many other thinkers. And so Gebser was one of the thinkers that I had picked up. I was also going to read Sri Aurobindo and, and Tehar de Chardin and then uh, uh, Rudolf Steiner. Gebser was in the list. Cracked open ever-present origin. Had no idea what to expect other than the fact that uh, a few of, of other thinkers that I respected mentioned him and referenced him, including Wilbur. And immediately in the first paragraph, it just struck me. He's doing something different with time. Integral means something that I can feel palpably in this first paragraph. I didn't get very, very far in that initial reading. I had to like close the book and then reread it and then open it again and just like really kind of chew on it for a mm. while. And I, it was already working on me and I could feel it working on me. I could feel the text working on me. So when I mentioned in my book, like it's a catalytic read, I don't just mean that as like, Potentially, for me, it was a visceral experience of feeling reworked by this sense of time that integral consciousness, whatever that might be, has to do with this transformation of the way we perceive the present. It just came alive. Mm. And that was, the, that was actually the, the comparison there was, you know, having read a lot of Wilbur up to that point, circa 2006, and going, I never really got this immediacy with Wilbur. Conceptually, I did. It was really fun. It was really beautiful in some passages, like when Wilbur talks about non-duality and has spiritual passages, etc. But right here at the outset, in, in a sort of a simple way, Gebser was transmitting something in mm -hmm. the text. So that's when it that's when I got Gebser pilled. That's when Gebser became alive for me. Um, but I, I won't say that like I, I got it immediately. It was it was just a kind of um, indescribable felt sense that integral consciousness meant something that was more alive than I was getting in other texts. Mm. And then I had to stick with this text and wrestle with it and wrestle with this figure um, who Wilbur, you know, references and, and adapts in, into his theory, but that there was something alive in this thinker that I needed to understand. So 
and that was 2006. So ever since then, I think I've been trying to unpack not only that experience, but, but what Gebser does, right? Like why is integral consciousness so alive in this text? Mm. What does that actually mean? So, mm. yeah. Yes. So you have done the same thing. I've been reading a bit of Gebser. You have, in, in, in my estimations, achieved that same ability. Your text has been working on me in that same way. And that's a beautiful and a profound thing and, and, and quite a rare thing, I find. So it, that fascinates me that you're kind of drawn to his work because you obviously have similar inclinations inside of yourself that were kind of waiting to, to come out and blossom. And what strikes me is the simplicity on the other side of complexity with it, of, of the, what, what you both do, whatever we're finding in both of your texts, they're, they're, they're dense. They're, they're uh, packed with uh, big ideas, uh, poetic, beautiful words, but also complex uh, constellations of, of uh, logos. And yet, through that complexity, you arrive at simplicity. It, 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 it speaks beyond the words and you start to approach the numinous and the mysterious. And that's, I just, I just, there's something so delicious in that, isn't it? That you need to kind of go, you need to ramp up your complexity to kind of burst through and get this escape velocity into this space of like, okay, I don't quite know what's going on here. It almost feels like a lucid dream. It's like, oh, I don't want to move or blink too quickly or I might come out of it. But like, I'm getting a sense of this. And isn't that a fascinating way that ah, we can use the intellect to kind of transcend mystically? Yeah, and that's that's definitely the way I experience Skepser too, as, as a kind of intellectual mystic, right? Mm. Because he's there's so much complexity in what he's presenting and deep study and... Uh, historical and artistic references that you really need to know. And if you don't know, then you need like the internet as your reading companion to be researching a work of art or a particular philosopher and see, and then you have to trace how Gebser's connecting the dots in terms of, okay, how is this evidencing some kind of shift or mutation in consciousness? And what does this mean? Right. There's so many things he was weaving in there, but it's like the process itself rather than an, an end or an aim of the process. Right. Yes. It's like, folding those and enfolding those things together in that way opens up a kind of knowing mm. right and, and for, for some for some including myself like that occurs while i'm reading gepser and then i go away and i'm like what what did i just read because it, it's sort of fading now but it was when i was with gepser in the text or any other philosopher who's writes like that then it really makes sense so so for me yeah it's been it's been kind of a journey to and I would say that the book was a labor too, my my book, mm. in in writing it because I, I wanted to present succinctly, but with the same degree of nuance as much as I possibly could, mm -hmm. what Gebser was presenting. I, yes, it's an introductory book, mm. but also it has to, or I wanted it to impart that same kind of efficacy. And that was difficult because you could go on for quite a long time. And my book is a short little book. It's a, it's like a concentrated tincture of the ever-present origin. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as well, the writing process didn't take too long. It, it was, so, so it started with a, uh, the artist of the cover, Nina Bunjevic. I had discovered her work through Twitter. 
Uh, and interestingly enough, I had written the first chapter, the opening chapter, the introduction, uh, one late August evening in a thunderstorm. And immediately as the thunderstorm came to a conclusion, I took a break, I went online, finished the chapter, felt pretty good, and immediately found Ninja, Nina Bunjevic's art on Twitter. And it was, uh, it was uh, the same portrait style of, I think, Rudolf Steiner, or maybe Carl Jung. And then on her website, there was Gepser. So I reached out and we had a great conversation and, and, and she uh, gave me permission to use uh, her portrait for the Gepser book. And I told her the context, like, is this great synchronicity? I was in the middle of writing the chapter and I wrapped it up for the evening. And there, there was your picture right after I was done. Mm. Um, so, so it was an intensive few months, actually, from August through uh, December of, of 2018, uh, that, that the, the book kind of arrived. And it was a labor in the sense that writing that intensively, even a short book like this, but writing that intensively over those over those months was sort of a deep kind of communion with Gepser's writing and, mm. and style and thinking and, and just revisiting and revisiting the book and really trying to understand what he was what he was communicating. Uh, so th- I think there's mm. a there's a kind of um, I'm thinking of like Adam Roberts' work with the side view and what he talks about is like ascesis, right? Mm. A kind of philosophy as a as a contemplative practice as a as a embodied practice it felt like that i mean i would go to the coffee house before the pandemic right um and i would spend hours reading and reading and there was a marathon like quality to it and writing as well and i think there there's something to that really paying attention to a book that tells you to pay attention to your sense perception and to pay attention to how your utterance your language mm-hmm. right gepser spends so much careful attention and time trying to unpack etymology uh, as he says like you know every word is 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 a is a magical utterance in that it's it's audible, but it's also mythical in that it's an image, and it's also mental in that we can conceptualize words, their concepts, their text. Mm. So just this carefulness with language and just being with somebody, it felt like a training marathon. Mm. I guess is what I'm saying. So so I'm glad that that comes through in in this text. Very much, yeah. I I hope that sits well with you because. Yeah, it's quite quite profound the experience I've had with it, and I wanted to. I, I can only imagine that what that period must have been like. Uh, that must have been a really beautiful transcendental experience, and this intellectual mysticism. I want to spend a little bit more time on this because this fascinates me. I I got introduced to uh, spirituality consciousness studies through the East, as so many young Western people did. Uh, Zen Zen books, um, even kind of you know, Eckhart Tolle stuff, which is, you know, Advaita Vedanta through with, with another spin on it to some degree. And so this idea of, uh, you know, transcending the mind, deconstructing the ego, moving past it, which, you know, is a wonderful stream of tradition and practice, but yeah, then getting introduced to Kabbalistic magic later on. And this like, yeah, there's a Western equivalent that, is maybe a bit more suited to your cultural kind of logos. And that was really exciting for me when I got into Dion Fortune and I went really deep off, off, off that, off that pier for months and, and really kind of traveled around the world reading this stuff, actually really getting into um, Daniel Pinchbeck around that time as well. His, his 2012 book really set me up. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was before 2012. And uh, uh, I'd, I'd read some of your works on reality sandwich from, from a long time ago, but 
yeah, this feeling of uh, a connection to the spiritual through the intellectual, which is fairly rare. And again, it's a good example that Jean Gebser is, no one really knows who he is. I mean, even compared to like Teilhard de Chardin and, and Aurobindo, he's kind of like, yeah, why is that? Why in the West have we, have we not discovered our own spiritual scholars? Have you, have you put some thought into that? Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I think part of this is is the latency, right? The the, the time in which Gebser's uh, the ever present origin was translated, which was around 1985, mm. uh, by uh, Noel Barstead and Algis McCunis, and uh, they took a very academic approach. There was the start of the academic society here, the International Gene Gebser Society, and that was that was the real the first current, right? And it hit the 1980s transpersonal movement. Through Wilbur's work, through uh, uh, Jirich Feuerstein's work, who's uh, who was a famous yoga scholar, mm. uh, and it also uh, definitely was influential for William Irwin Thompson, who folks don't know much about either, but they they really should. Um, so so it, it, it hit during that time, but Teilhard's books they 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 were published posthumously, uh, I think in the 1950s, and he had a he had a moment. There was a moment where where there was a big scientific debate and pushback and a critique of him, but also a, a kind of very interesting, like Flannery O'Connor, for instance, um, really picked up on Tehard's work and wrote wrote about him in letters, and even Philip K. Dick discovered him in the 1970s. Mm. So I th- I think. Tehard had a little bit more time and maybe maybe the right moment in in the English speaking and reading world to really kind of set in during a moment of high consciousness culture, mm. right? Um, the 50s and the 60s, yeah. which is a great time. Interestingly, during Gebser's life, the 60s, he he did start to gain notoriety. Mm. Um, he began to be more well known, and at least in, in the German speaking world, and there's a few preface notes in in the book where he's actually acknowledging um, what I think is the hippie movement. That, oh, like, okay, awesome. The young generation That's gets delicious. what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so so the, that did seem to be the direction things were going. And he passed away in 1973, mm. um, a little young, uh, due to due to having some uh, health complications. So. You know, for some reason or other, uh, latency has been his theme, and for better or worse, he was picked up in the '80s through through Ken Wilber's work. And Wilber took it, took his structures of consciousness, which we can get into at some point, mm-hmm. and what those are, and mm-hmm. and how Wilber used them. But he took those and ran with it into inter- integral theory. So. Gebser's been here, but kind of filtered, kind of behind other thinkers, right? Or kind of latent in, in culture. But my my thinking is maybe the timing is more appropriate timing, now. Yeah. So he arrived in the 80s. Everyone was too busy doing coke, making money in it. And, it, and if <laughs> yeah. he'd been more white, if your book had come out in the 60s, it might have changed the course of history. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to think that, that like, like that. Um, yeah, I, but I think right now, though, not just my book, but really attention and, and interest in Gebser. Um, what I've noticed, especially with the integral theory community, is there's there's a hunger for a different approach to what integral means. Yes. And I think it's that same kind of transmission experience that that I that I encountered in reading Gebser for the first time and going, oh, he's doing something different and it is alive in the text. What is this? What does this mean? Why is it more alive for me? Mm. Um, and that might be his poetic sensibility because he was a poet. It might be his attention to 
aesthetics and cultural phenomenology, right? What is the lived experience that uh, only a poem could describe or a poetic thinker who's also a scholar and intellectual could maybe marry in terms of having that poetic truth, that insight, and then having also that intellectual language to begin to translate it and, and have the right kind of utterance for it, right? So Gebser's approach as, as, um, as it's called a cultural phenomenology is really looking at that, like what is the felt sense arising in culture? The questions that we, we might want to explore today is like, uh, you know, what is our lived relationship to time and space, mm -hmm. right? How do we identify and understand the self in relation to the world? And what is this like alive in us? And how does this change? What are, what are the kind of stressors that we're all kind of undergoing right now? Mm -hmm. Part of that reason why I think he's he's speaking to people is exactly this theme of time though mm -hmm. like this felt sense of time and temporix becoming an ever increasing or ever intensifying um, theme of our of our world really yeah. I mean 2020 was a great example of, of intensification of time mm -hmm. I remember reading a, an article in in the Guardian complaining about how uh, time doesn't matter anymore. It's just a time soup. Weekends are blur blurring into weekdays and we are no longer have the same kind of work schedule. And on the other hand, there's like memes coming out like YouTube viral videos of, um, I forget the, uh, the YouTube channel that did this skit, but basically it was, uh, a woman who's talking to herself in the future, mm -hmm. uh, or, or our present and her just passed like just a few months ago. Right. And so she's joking to her her past self, like, oh, did you get to the, the, the killer hornets yet? And she's like, killer hornets? We're already in the middle of an epidemic <laughs> yeah. and we're killer hornets? So there's a sense of compression of time <laughs> at, at the same time that time seems to be melting down. Mm -hmm. And these are experiences anybody can be like, oh, yeah, 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 I feel that. I feel that, actually. And Gebser speaks to that. Mm -hmm. So I think he, he reaches us in a way that is alive. Yes. And... Before we go too deep into time, I want to um, I want to uh, play a little game with you, which I gave you a little heads up just before of, I want to invite you to sum up Gebs's primary theme, his drive. What, what was he working on through his life in uh, two sentences, if possible, or a couple of sentences, a small little short summary. So mm -hmm. do you accept my challenge, Jeremy Johnson? I, I accept it, Joe. Um, okay. Like I said to you before, uh, this is the, I, I didn't want to prepare for this question yeah, at all. Off the cuff. I just wanted to jump into it. So off the cuff, I would say uh, Gene Gepser was attempting to articulate the history of the dateless. Okay. And I cheated a little bit because in Everpresent Origin, he says poetry is the history of the dateless. Mm. Um, but I think this sums up very well what he's doing. There's a truth in what he's observing about what we are undergoing, right? Things that happen that maybe we can't necessarily pin down and say like, here's integral consciousness. And yet we feel this, we feel this shift, we feel this change. And it is true. Uh, and we can give plenty of examples of it, but it, it's, it's tracing these threads between the visible and the invisible. Right, that might be another way to, to put mm. it. There's an openness to the world between the visible and the invisible. Tracing and, the history of the dateless and mm. tracking the connections between the visible and the invisible. Wow, 
that does it for me. And we have to say just time, full stop as well. There has to be time mentioned somehow. <laughs> the um, third sentence is just a sentence fragment, time. Time, yeah. Um, okay, you're next. Now, please give me the harmonic of Jeremy in a couple of sentences. Ooh, this one's harder. Mm. I would say my little incarnational role here is to is to bring attention to that practice of relating the visible and invisible i i don't i wouldn't say it's the same as gepser in that like yeah i'm not at the level of <laughs> of gepser i think but and yet i feel what it's important for me to bring attention to it so if my writing does that that's great you know if if talking about it does it that's great something feels fulfilling about that mm beautiful attention mm -hmm. how does that feel for you as you say that does that feel did that feel accurate now that you just look yeah. back on what you just shared yeah does it feel yeah how does it feel in your body calming very like hmm that's a good like like uh, uh like a smile it feels yeah. like a smile beautiful yeah i get that sense from you and i take great solace in having gotten clearer uh it sounds like both of us i mean I, I wrote a book last year and well took you know three years took me longer but um oh, as you know it's a process that i would uh wish upon and never wish upon all of my closest friends it was like the most arduous beautiful experience but then also condensing and getting clearer and it sounds like that's what Gebser was doing as well and I've heard this was Wilbur's experience as well like really difficult kind of like intense process that oh I need to do this again but then it is a, a spiritual practice that allows you to distill your connection to the essence of reality and get clearer on what it is that maybe you're here to do and offer and if I was to do mine it would be to revivify the communal sphere of human relationship in the name of integration, individuation, and regenerating our planetary culture. A little more buzzwordy, Beautiful. but like, mm. Mm. yeah, in there. And yeah, I feel relaxed. Like, just like, yeah, that's it. Like, just just focus on that one idea. That's all you kind of need. Like you can touch on so many different things through that thread, but like, I think there's great power in finding what our lens is. And I feel, uh, I want to help encourage myself and others to get clearer on that and stay true to that and really go deep into that. And then we can kind of not, not in the way of becoming too much of an expert per se, because I think, you know, being that connected generalist also has power, but I think that's where a community, a culture of what I hope to experience going forward with the integral community allows you to do. Cause it's like, okay, Jeremy, you've slightly got that angle. I've slightly got that angle. And then if we kind of stay in tandem near each other, we can pollinate each other from those two different rivets and then, and then mm -hmm. come together and create a more kind of broader transcendental movement, newospheric experience together. So yeah, I wonder if that makes sort of sense to you as well. Completely. Um, I love the buzzwords, but <laughs> particularly your, your, your explanation of that, right? Like the emergence and the resilience 
that that is really what you want to build that capacity building of resilience amongst like difference right okay i have an emphasis you have an emphasis and it's this interrelationship between and building that resilient web i think is really really important and and also one of the in any way like the way i've studied history of consciousness culture and mm. counterculture is in particular artistic or philosophical movements is very often uh different thinkers who or artists who are citing each other and hanging out with one another uh they, they end up in each other's biographies when you read them and you notice these kind of rhizomatic connections yes. that are right there you know and you didn't realize that they were right there so you read about them um and maybe they were citing each other's work um if not directly in an academic sense maybe in a in an imagined creative sense right like influencing one another i think this is a really big thing like give you we talked about this in one of the clubhouse sessions about the lord of the rings and, mm -hmm. and tolkien um but it's a really interesting context to, to think about how we always talk about c.s lewis and tolkien as buddies but owen barfield was also in that mix of the inklings and owen barfield was an anthroposophist and he he was following the writings and uh philosophy of rudolf steiner mm. uh and so I have to imagine some of the themes in the Lord of the Rings that have to do with the emergence of consciousness, which I think there, those themes are in there, might have been co-shaped by the friendship of mm. Owen Barfield. The fellowship. Going for even. Yeah, the, the fellowship. So I, I think there's, there's great strength in that. Uh, and I, I love that you're using the word uh, planetary culture. So that, that's that's fantastic. I'm, um, I'm going to pre-title this podcast uh, from planetary crisis to planetary consciousness, which is a phrase mm. from one of your articles or books. And I, I guess like, yeah, I'll just sprinkle that intention over what we're doing. But I, ironically, like this is what I love about your work and my experience of dialoguing with you so far is like there is and there isn't an end point. Like the emergence is in the being together. So like, rather than rushing off to some future state, I'm here with you, touching that future, being present and enjoying that process, but through hopefully the artistic spirit that we're sparking in each other in this moment, the, the, the Eros and the Logos together, we start to manifest that, that, that we start to be that flowering of consciousness. And I guess like, I want to ask you a pretty deep question that just came up just then, like, are we are we really on the edge of something new? Is, is in your understanding of this, is it an evolution in in terms of uh, a novel, more advanced, more refined, diaphanous version of consciousness coming through, or are we just tapping into a timeless now? And did Gebser already touch on all aspects of it? And are we just touching that same fullness, or or is there is there a novelty? Added, added on to this, this new emergence that we're on the edge of. Yeah, I, I would say it's both, right? Mm. Uh, the, the, and it's right there in the preface to EPO uh, that it, it is bringing forth the presence of origin, which mm -hmm. we might also take origin out and, and call it the spiritual or the ineffable or the whole, right? The words escape us. Yeah. When we are sprung is a good this. one as well. sprung yes which means primordial leap mm. right so so the ever-present primordial leap so it's not just an eternal now that is out of time and and is at the beginning of time and the beginning of 
the manifest world. It is an ever originating primordial leap, mm. right? And Gebser are saying we bring that presence into us, into the human being. So on the one hand, it's ever present. This is an ever present consciousness of origin. On the other hand, to bring it in the human being is exceedingly novel and difficult, right? So there's a novelty in it. There's a, it is a structure of consciousness as Gebser is describing, but then also that structure of consciousness is transparent to something that's ever present. Hmm. That's the, that's what's kind of coming online, but also I, I would say, uh, and, and like Gebser gives very careful attention to, and then I only touch on very lightly in, in, in my book, uh, at least this book, maybe I'll do more in, in the next one, mm -hmm. but, uh, there's so much manifest, like cultural manifestation of what he calls the integral, a perspectival world the the, it has a quality or a flavor to it. Like we might say like a poem or a work of art or a particular style of architecture or an economic system that is much more, that is integrated time and temporics and process mm. um, that is no longer as anthropocentric, right? Mm. Uh, that might be in our contemporary language, regenerative, yeah. uh, 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 not extractive, right? Or donut economy might be one peer-to-peer mm -hmm. Uh, studies might be another uh, avenue of exploring. Our that. words are a bit boring um, compared to like mid-century Swiss poetics, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> that, that's my sense as you say that. Like yeah. I felt in my buzzwords, they're a little bit like, yes, description. Oh, yes, that talks about that. But like Gebser was, like, had so much fun with his language, didn't he? Inventing words and the use of, the, he, yeah. he put the letter A before his words, the kind of like A perspectival. And it was like, what do you do with that? It's like, it, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. touches you in your core. And I, and I sense you have that similar relationship with language. So I'm, I'm, I'm picking up on that. Yeah. But, but there is a novelty to it, I guess is what I'm saying. There mm. is something that it has yep. a qualitative embodiment that requires us to, to find those new utterances, those yes. new words, those yes. new, that new language. And then also the new cultural flowering like the whole idea behind cultural phenomenology is that our structure of consciousness is reflected in how we materialize it and bring it into the world through yes. art language culture economics history all of that it's all here and we can trace it back to the invisible the poetry of the dateless mm. but we can also trace it into its its rendering visible its materialization its concretization is another yes. word Gebster loved to use so it's that that kind of open relationship again between the visible and the invisible searching for these qualities that seem ineffable and virtual but also very material mm. and so yeah the buzzwords of today regenerative culture uh um moving towards a common centric society yeah. moving yeah. away a post-capitalist common centric peer-to-peer -peer, mm -hmm. distributive all of these themes like we can look at them and try to get a sense of uh, what are the characteristics or qualities that they all have in common, mm. not as a sort of conceptual like meta pattern in a, in a conceptual way, but as like a qualitative attitude that they all share, right? And this is what Gebser was interested in. And I think it's interesting since he was writing this in the 1940s and 50s, uh, he's really speaking to what's happening, or at mm. least what you and I are excited about mm. with regenerative principles and planetization and all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. He was really speaking to that before any of that stuff was really articulated in culture, right, in, in his time. But he still had a lot to talk about back then. I mean, back then, like jazz was still somewhat of a novelty. Uh, uh, modernist architecture, he was, I was just, I've, I've been on this um, 
architectural studies kick uh, mm -hmm. with the Bauhaus movement mm. in 1919. And one of the things, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but yeah, go for it. One of the things that uh, one of my mentors, uh, Debashish Banerjee, who uh, is an Aurobindian scholar, mm. he has mentioned to me in conversation as a kind of observation of, of, of Gebser's writing in time was that it, it seems like right around mid-century, uh, there was a sort of cultural flowering that Gebser was describing in his book and tracing that may have receded a little bit post-war. That mm. the, the, the trauma of World War II, the whole half mid mid 20th century all of the events that were occurring and then the, the cold war um there was a kind of receding of this a perspectivity mm. and that kind of frames things in an interesting way that you know maybe there are particular moments in our recent history that are closer to the future than we are and i find that to be a really interesting observation wow. yeah uh and I, I bring up the bauhaus because uh there are some ways that the bauhaus was not very progressive uh, in, in in sort of gender balance. Mm -hmm. Even on paper, it was, but it, uh, you know, in, in practice, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And in other ways, though, the whole idea behind the Bauhaus was very aperspectival, as Gebser mentions. Like um, the integrality of the disciplines was just where you started. Right? If yeah. you were an architect, you would need to go to painting classes and uh, sculpting classes and dancing classes and learn color theory with Paul Klee and, and then move over and then do some architectural work. There was an integrality of everything. Everything was interrelating with everything else in a kind of spontaneity. And I was, it was wonderful to think about it that way. And, and one wonders like, well, why didn't that continue? Like, why have we moved into a period of profound academic hyper-specialization? Yeah. Um, That's a good question. So this was in 1919. Yeah. So like, I'm just saying like a hundred years ago we were doing this and mm. it seems to recede and then bubble back up. And you might even say the same thing about particular moments in history. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I forget the, 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 the author, the novelist who mentioned this, but uh, I, I found it through William Gibson's Twitter, mm -hmm. um, uh, a particular author talking about the sixties and the way they described the sixties was that, you know, time was so intensified it felt like we were in the future the, the future and, and the present were just sort of bleeding into each other and then after the 60s it receded mm. so it's like it, it kind of faded away and i think particularly still moments, see the high watermark what's that great hunter as thompson quote about the end of the 60s i forget oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's another one that's another good one yeah. um so so there's this sense in which you know time is much more plastistic than we imagine it to be and you know it's not as linear, right? And this is Gebser's point about temporics and, and gaining a kind of language around temporics, a qualitative language around it, and that it is multidimensional uh, folding and infolding and that the past, present, and future co-shape one another. Mm. And really thinking about that in, in a maybe in an intuitive sense at first, because we might immediately go, what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. um, is this some kind of quantum thing? Or is this some kind of new age thing? Mm -hmm. uh, which it has, you know, there are adaptations of it that go in that direction. Mm -hmm. And I can't really speak to those. But I can say that time as a theme, where the past, present and future interrelate, even at a secular level, right now with the climate crisis is deeply where we are, right? We're drawing up fossil fuels that are millions of years old, we are feeling the effect, uh, the accumulative effect of this climate crisis from our 
immediate ancestors and what they were doing, burning coal in the 1700s and 1800s and so on. Uh, the, the, the storms and the weather we experience today is inter, in, intimately linked with what they were doing. And then what we're doing right now is intimately linked with, with hopefully our descendants. Um, but we're entangled in this uh, aliveness of time, mm. of past, present, and future in, in, in a way that gives us a lot of anxiety but doesn't have to. Right. Mm. Like there's another, there's a, we can flip that. It's also a very beautiful thing. Um, yeah. It could be almost nurturing. Like, yeah. Uh, an antidote to existential uh, unease. Like, so what, mm. what can sometimes feel like a void if we, if we drop too much into the, the, the modern sense of distance and vacuum as space time mm. as, as a kind of endless nothingness. And it's, if you can then get a bit further than that and envelop that once more again and weave in the past and the future, you can find yourself, I've been, I've been getting a sense of almost cradled in this kind of like womb-like state. This ever-present origin is a pretty good description of it really. And yeah, there's beauty in that. There's, there's the unknown, but then there's also the fact that everything is already known and you hit this place of paradox that's like, okay, yeah, everything's as it's meant to be, which ironically frees me up. To, to just be more creative and not, not worry so much. And just like, yeah, it's, it's okay. Yeah. I guess a sense of safety, even maybe the, maybe mm. the deepest sense of safety, which as I go deeper into, you know, trauma work and really looking at the nitty gritty of the modern world and how do we reprogram and co-regulate our psychobiological systems. And it can get very like, whoa, intense. But like, if we go down to the bottom of just like this kind of existential safety by connecting the future present and the past um that's profound and that's that's quite rejuvenating even as an imaginative exercise right just just paying attention to you know ourselves as like michael garfield likes to say like uh future fossils or future ancestors is another way to put it right mm. that even if we don't have direct uh, you know lineage we are still um I'll give you an example, one that that really hit culture uh, this past year. But mm -hmm. the 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 19, 1917, 1918 uh, Spanish flu um, that there was a lot of pictures of people wearing masks and the kind of um, awareness material that was promoted a lot at the time started circulating now. And there's these really beautifully haunting photographs of um, just individuals sort of standing with their masks on, holding like a sign to like promote, you know, wearing your mask in public. And this is from a, a century ago. And there was such, I had this moment of, of maybe one of those diaphanous experiences of just really feeling those individuals and their past as alive and, and intimately linked with our present. Mm. And this thinking about, well, you know, there, there, there's a future that's looking at us too, right? That we're looking at each other. Like I'm looking at the past and the past feels like it's looking at me, mm. but, but why does that preclude the future? Like why, why isn't the future doing the same thing? Like we're in the position now of those folks in the 19, whatever flu, um, and people are looking back at us, perhaps. Again, just as an imaginative exercise, just as an aesthetic experience, the, the presence of other mm. across time is, is a really powerful kind of meditation and practice. Uh, you know, Joanna Macy has some really good uh, practices on, on, on her website that 
actually kind of lean into that even further and uh, ask you to do a kind of journaling work or hearing the voices of the future and what are our descendants, what do they want to say to us, mm. right? What do we want to say to them? And so there's a kind of active imagination process. But I think any of these things that help um, uh, intensify the subjectivity of time, allow it to become alive and dynamic in us is, is really powerful. And very much, I think, along the lines of what, what Gepser was trying to emphasize um, very cryptically throughout EPO, yeah. right, present origin. But it's it's there, that the aliveness of the past and the I think future. I'm, I think I'm getting a, a voice from, from the future. I, I think, what, what's it saying? Is it, invest more in Bitcoin. It's oh, <laughs> sadly financial, but uh, I think I'll take that advice. Um, <laughs> take what you can get, right? Whatever comes through. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah, that um, this idea of like, I'm feeling in this moment, uh, a lovely connection to, of lineage, because I'm, I'm realizing how uh, disconnected, I really like this idea of neo tribalism, which for me is marrying indigenous wisdom with uh, modern intelligence is one way to put it and, and reconnecting to the earth and, and our origins that way. But, uh, Gebs is an easier, like he's right there. He's, it's, it's, it's like not that long ago. And he really is the lineage through which what I'm up to, that's where it comes from. And I can feel a sense of connection to that and, and, and a sense of ease and a sense of belonging and a sense of, uh, yeah, feeling somewhat part of, of something rather than like an atomized hyper individual in this moment. And I suppose maybe that's what I'd like the integral movement, if we could revivify it again, you know, it's continually evolving to, to be an invitation into a spiritual intellectual tradition that goes b before Ken Wilbur, because I don't know, Ken, Ken Wilbur, the, the word integral, it strikes me that what it should mean is, is someone that has uh, done what Ken did and what uh, Jean did, which is go across all the different fields of architecture, literature, psychology, and find the, the, the spiritual kernel in amidst all of it. But it's come to mean, um, you know, Boulder in the 1990s and like a series of books. And it's like, huh, that's funny. I really, I don't want to throw away that term. I've kind of embraced metamodernism a lot mm -hmm. because of how much Hansi's work um, and Daniel's become a friend of mine it really resonates with me and it's this, you know, uh, rejuvenation and kind of like, can we take the goodness and, and peel away the rest? Um, but I don't know, getting into Jean now, I'm like, I think we could get, let's keep integral there and then rediscover what it means. Cause it really, mm -hmm. it really is. If we're going to choose one term, gosh, it speaks to a lot. And I, I like how you, uh, you, you kind of pick apart the word meta and and where it comes from and metaxis is something that you you talk about in in a more recent article and i see a theme of yours of like all right ken wilbur i see what you're doing with this integral word let me go back and just see where it came from and unearth it a little bit and i can sense you've done that with metamodernism it's fun you're like a archaeologist of these kind of like new uh, logos terminology for expanding consciousness movements you know well, yeah, I think, you know, I, I love Hansi and, and Daniel too. I, I think he's doing some fantastic work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, with, with a lot of my position with this is, is, um, Gepser, 
and he's not the only one. I think, you know, Bayo Akamalafe is doing some great work as well. Very, I mean, like if Gebser was pointing us like to the perspectival, I think uh, Bayo is a sort of standing <laughs> from he's the perspectival right kind of going like, Wait. hey guys, I'm <laughs> yes. over here. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so, you know, I, I think there's there's an unfinished work right that that gets through and it, like we were saying earlier like i was mentioning about the Bauhaus as a particular example or the 60s and 70s there's these kind of moments where where, where the the future becomes transparent and kind of shows up momentarily and then perhaps recedes like a tide uh and gepser i think was really just no holds barred being completely transparent about what needs to be and what is being dismantled with our cultural attitudes in mm-hmm. the West and also with globalization. What do you call the, the mental rational structure of consciousness, the perspective of world, like what was coming undone and how thoroughly it was coming undone. And then knowing what that was, what was coming undone, this world, its thought processes, its relationship to time, its anthropocentrism, really clearing a space for, okay, the integral is not those things, right? Uh, or the integral is a shining through of the whole, mm. but we can't- a Shining continue. through of the whole. Mm. Yeah, that yeah. stuck with me a, f- a few times, that, 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 hmm. Well, diaphany, right? Diaphany yes. is, is, is um, if you trace the, the Greek- the shining through of a phenomena or the shining through phenomena. Yeah, so what is arising? Yeah. There's a kind of translucence or transparency of what is arising of, of mm. various phenomena, et cetera. Um, not just objects, but for Gebser time and consciousness, the, the shining through of the whole history of consciousness becoming a becoming present and becoming present B through this originary intensity, right? What is holding all of that is coming forward. So for Gebser, it's not about being modern anymore. It's not about being going back or going forward, right? That spatiality of, of either one way or the other is 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 really beside the point. It's The integral is almost orthogonal to that. It's mm. a sudden flashing forth of the whole. Yeah. And so my point is that I think Gebser's work and what he's like really leaving room for and articulating a need for hasn't really been picked up. And that's what I wrote about in the meta modern piece, right? That moving towards this, okay, do we, we need a new language of time. We, we can't progress forward anymore in terms of, in terms of this mentality of um, development and progress and modernity, et cetera. That trajectory is exhausted spiritually, existentially, philosophically. Um, and we're dealing with that. We're kind of reckoning with that right now with this, this meta crisis or planetary crisis. So hmm. that is what Gebser is going, okay, so what do we do then? How, what is the new statement? How do we think and perceive and relate to the world differently? And in a way with a consciousness that is neither feeling itself superior to what has come before in terms of, as you mentioned, indigenous thinking, indigenous cultures and communities, mm-hmm. the whole history of consciousness, allowing that to shine forth in the present. Not, not as a kind of wishy-washy, it's all kind of amorphous in one, um, not as necessarily even in kind of a mythic expression of, um, you know, the dark and the light or the past and the present forming some polarity, not in that sense either, but in this sort of clarifying transparency and not, and not in the synthetic either, right? The, the modern attitude would be like, how does this all synthesize? How do mm. we conceptually bring everything together in a map or a model. And Gebser's saying it's not that either. There's, it's more alive than that. Mm-hmm. And it also 
sustains and supports concept or myth or mm-hmm. magic, right? It sustains and supports the whole history of consciousness. He's saying that degree of intensity is actually what's needed right now. Mm-hmm. So, so it, maybe it's like too tall of, a, of an order to, to really fulfill, right? In that sense of we are kind of modern, right? We, we, we do want to synthesize things. We do want to do create maps of everything. We do want to go meta, right? We're situated in the perspective of a world and the mm-hmm. mental perspective of a world that does that. So I, I've kind of seen Gepser as this weird, blip who kind of rendered it all like the emperor has no clothes yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're still trying to figure out how, how to adjust to that. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. I, as you're saying that I'm feeling uh, a lovely kind of, I don't want to say synthesis. Yeah. I'm feeling to take an integral approach to integral studies. And I'm recognizing that Gibbs is just a really important, potentially the most important part I'm starting to see what he's representing alongside the Wilberian movement, progression, mapping, alongside what's going on with metamodernism now. And they're all playing really important parts of like this, yeah, mapping the unmappable, you know? And, and, Mm -hmm. and yeah, that feels right. That feels good that there doesn't need to even be a comparison that it's kind of like, they're all different parts of the truth, which is, you know, the, the, the kernel of integral, isn't it? That every perspective has some version of truth. But ironically, what we're pointing at is beyond the, even that idea. It's kind of yeah, all of it. Um, I, I want to hone in a little bit on just how brilliant he was, because I'm starting to get a sense that he was one of the greatest minds that, uh, yeah, I've come across, basically. I mean, you put you put him in that same category of like, you know, you could say Jung and Steiner, and these are people that have whole schools and associations based on studying them. And if you get to that point, it's generally saying something, isn't it? So it's something you wrote about. He saw the postmodern before it arrived, and then he even got a sense of what was beyond the postmodern before the postmodern arrived, what is going on there? How do you, how does, you know, like, how do you get insight into two cultural progressions before what's going on? So, um, yeah. What's that about? I think Gebser understood the, 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 this postmodern turn, which, which, you know, he passed away in 73, Mm. right? So he's really at the cusp of that really coming online in, in the universities. And then of course, in the eighties with, um, with, that really exploded with Derrida and then Foucault, et cetera. So that was really present. Uh, but right before he was um, really around, right, he passed away right before all of that started to happen. So I think part of the the answer to this question is that a phenomenological approach, these structures of consciousness that he identified descriptively or attempted to be as descriptive as possible, um, has, he got really to like the root of 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 the modern world. Yeah. What are what are the forms of embodiment and perception that are fundamental to um, thinking and philosophy and the history of modernity? Right. What are the what are the roots of that? So when you get to the roots of that and you see it playing out, it, it, the structures themselves are these really deep. I'm using roots. I'm using, um, I wanted to go to geological, right? Mm -hmm. They're almost like tectonic plates or environments, right? They're a whole field that 
isn't necessarily like if you go into the minutia and go, okay, uh, modernity, post-modernity, meta-modernity, they all have a certain kind of logic to them. And that lot, that under that underlying logic is the structure of consciousness that Gebser's talking about. So that's what he's really speaking to, right? Mm. Um, post-modernity, what uh, we can, we can say it's de- uh, deconstructive, pluralistic, um, so, so even with that, he was saying, you know, this integral turn, right, was uh, now about the interrelationship between things. I would say Gebser understood the postmodern, without calling it that, as a kind of intermediary space and mm. part of the breakdown of the perspectival world, right? Yes. And by the perspectival world, what do I mean? Well, and what does Gebser mean? He means sense-directed thinking, mm. concepts, abstraction. Right. We take this so for granted as moderns, right? But we once lived in a world where myth and imagination were much more present. Richard Tarnas talks quite a bit about this too. And a lot of different thinkers talk about this. Owen Barfield, uh, uh, Charles Taylor talks about this and the buffering of the self, that kind mm. of process that takes place. So Gebser's trying to identify this underlying structure of consciousness that is really the operating principle or attractor for for modernity. And he traces it historically. And this is what he goes into, and you've read that chapter about mm. the development of perspective in, in painting and then um, in philosophy, right? And it's a cleaving apart of, of the whole, right? It's, it's orienting towards the organ of the eye of perception and the visual cone that the Renaissance artists are really good at developing, mm-hmm. but also the conceptual cone of, let's say, dialectical thinking or yeah. thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? So there's a, sim- there's a similarity in that kind of pyramidic structure, yeah. right? Yeah, the kind Gibbs of Hegelian process, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hegelian marks, you know, the dialectical process of history, mm. um, and he, he describes it as a process of rendering myth into concept, right? Mm. To take take myths and, and to transmute them into concepts. And this is what the mental structure of consciousness is really good at, particularly the perspectival world that is predominantly based in the mental structure is really good at. So, but the uh, other side of that is, is mm. when you overemphasize a particular cultural expression or ex- uh, structure of consciousness, mm. um, Gebser says it enters into its deficient phase, mm. which he means by that is um, quantitative overemphasis on, on on something that was previously very helpful. So knowing yourself, standing apart from the world, spatializing the world in that perspectival way, opening up a three dimensional space, really profound, really individuating, helped us you know get science as we know it going right, and all those all of those things. But it also helped us get colonization as we know it going um and it's sort of end point is this hyper fractioning this hyper segmentation the standing apart from the world becomes atomization and alien alienation and what once helped us get a sense of this new perspective of a world to stand on the spatial ground three-dimensionality materialism etc um, has almost cut in back into itself. It's like turned on itself, right? So now everybody can have their own totalizing point of view. It's not just a shared culture that believes that and is able to go about the world with its science, et cetera. Now everybody can have that. So this is collapse and implosion of something uh, and an overwhelm of something that was once very helpful. Hmm. So the same themes that we see in modernity, those same tools 
are now turned upon themselves in a sort of deconstruct over deconstructive manner. But it's always been deconstructive. It's always cut us apart from the whole. Yes. So that's the through line I guess I'm trying to get to here mm. in terms of linking modern and postmodern. Right? Yeah. And that's why he could see with that clarity. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that. And it's a really powerful meta narrative. Uh, of of understanding how that thread of, of, of making sense of things it's like a yeah. a sense making anchor what you just explained is what's so central to ken wilber's work and spiral dynamics and jean gebser and hansi and it's like okay yeah there, there's we could work with that we could progress with that um so i'm going to recommend people at the beginning of the podcast uh jump and have a listen to your interview with daniel thorson because you go into the, the stages of perspectival and the structures of consciousness and that you do that so well together but i'll just refer people to that so you and i can keep kind of delving in in in, in the waters that we're in now rather than have to put you in teacher mode too much um yeah. the and they're just fascinating just just comparing those things but what's something I, I do want to talk about you mentioned the art is a really interesting way a really fun way to just describe these these three different stages so it's the unperspectival perspectival and a perspectival is that correct yeah these, these kind yes, of yes flow that's right. That's right. and yeah so you've got to talk to us a little bit about so you've got the cave art as as as, as an example of unperspectival i've actually been to the show in france um they don't oh, let you in amazing. but you can go close by and check it out and um you know the, the Werner herzog documentary is it's oh, in a different yeah. cave i think that's just like chauvet cave yeah that one hits you so um yeah, let's do a little comparison just quickly, just because it's fun and it gives people a reference of, of of the experience there. And then I was very fortunate uh, to spend a lot of time touring around Europe in my 20s, going to all the major art galleries. And um, for me, Vermeer really jumped out. Girl with a pearl earring. And I learned quite a bit about him and, and how he was one of the first artists to use these kind of light boxes to, to capture angles and mathematics to really get a distinct perspective. And there's like, I don't know, I would suggest that the, the Vermeer's art and some of those other Dutch masters, there's a transcendental quality to it. It's almost like yeah. that is, you've gotten the perspectival right. Or maybe that's just when the perspectival is having its moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then before it, maybe it goes a little bit too far as, as you, as you point to, and then coming to, um, I mean, it, you can't really go past Picasso, can you? It's kind of like, again, something about his art. And maybe this is what that is. It's like at the peak of that sort of structure of consciousness, like the embodiment of that mutation in that moment is captured in time. And if you can get enough time to be quiet around a Picasso piece, you can feel it touching you on all these different levels. And so if they're kind of a few little snippets, um, what are we looking at now? What's what's the edge of a perspective mm. art that that's emerging, and, and and have you felt it or touched it or seen it around? Really great question. You know, part of the the answer to that is a yes, and then b, it's different now, and I think you you hit that about, about Picasso, right? Um, Gebser was pointing out a lot of modernist artistic movements in the early 20th century really experimenting with the a perspectival and mm. and again not to go into teaching mode but the 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 significant shift if we were to evidence like you said um the dutch masters really just beautifully rendering space in a transcendent and sublime expression through their yeah. art uh 
the integral structure, the aperspectival world is trying to do that with time. And that the artists who are trying to articulate this in three-dimensional form or through sculpture, whatever they're doing, whatever mm. medium that they have, they're trying to concretize time yeah. somehow. And what do we mean by time? Is it is it linear time? Is it clock time? Is it melting time? Like the Salvador Dali painting that's very popular? Comes to mind, doesn't it? I mean, yes. Uh, but there, there's there's an aliveness to the world that they're attempting to to express that cannot be expressed by the merely material, right? Mm. So I think of um, uh, the impressionists, right? Like uh, think of Monet and the and the pond. Like mm. there's something invisible he's able to 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 translate into the visible through that work of art, right? Um, the the Italian futurists, who I think are a great example of a kind of uh, uh, perspectival spatial technological worshiping like um halfway moment right where they are also possessed by time but they're 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 expressing it through a very mechanical and perspectival way so mm. the overemphasis on spatializing the world right categorizing and measuring and hyper focusing on the material and observable with the eye the over sectorizing of consciousness right um is is being broken open by this intensity of time and uh the flooding forward i'm just describing this poetically go for it i'm right there with you but, uh, of the of the invisible into the visible so mm. you see dali especially in his early years exploring a lot of psychological abstract dreamlike images right so gepser says this this all has to do with the eruption of time yeah so when i look into our moment i'm thinking about you know who is really exploring that and how is the context different today NFTs? on the one hand I think, <laughs> maybe i don't <laughs> I know so. I, I don't know if people's <laughs> work is apex by perspectival or not <laughs> I, I think I, I don't have as many uh, concrete examples like Picasso or the futurists today. Um, rather, I have a kind of McLuhan answer in that uh -huh. I think digital the, culture the as medium a sort is the of message medium that we're all swimming in is 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 exploring a perspectivity in time. We're mm. always playing with time, like remixing past, present, and future. The the funny memes were. Or some of them aren't funny, like uh, Pepe. Like, okay, here, Pepe, well, Pepe the Frog, well, and the whole story around th that memeplex is is really, yeah. That that's for me the the cusp of of where art is at its most interesting. Yeah. So yeah, go on. I think that's really well. Even with that, is like a really interesting uh, retrieval. Um, and many thinkers have, have have talked about this, but a retrieval of uh, the the hieroglyphic style, right? Mm. The image oriented style. So we've seen that flood back with the internet, hieroglyphic thinking, image-based language and communication, auditory. Uh, one example might be clubhouse is for an example, bringing back the auditory medium. Um, and then we're playing with time, always playing with time. And we're always superseding space now with the internet. Space has collapsed to a single point. And it's a kind of a mess right now. I think right now yeah. in, in terms of our cultural evolution, the magic and the mythic, uh, the unperspectival world structures are just bubbling up along with the mental structure as everything's kind of amorphously shifting and redirecting and restructuring itself. So I would say we're in a, in a period of... of um, uh, I don't know, the hyper fluidity and all mm. of the structures are kind of bubbling up right now. Um, 
but the the theme of time and the intensity of time around the anxiety of collapse, I would say, is one of the biggest expressions. And it's not really mm-hmm. necessarily an artistic one, although there's plenty of art that's about that, uh, of this aperspectivity. Mm-hmm. What I would like to see more of is is a new a new movement, right? I think some of the artwork mm-hmm. around like Tim Morton's work and hyper objects is speaking to this a little bit. Um, there, are, there's also, I think, uh, uh, certain books like, um, I know we mentioned Ursula K. Le Guin in a previous conversation and some of her protagonists. We should think, mention her in every conversation. She, she's worthy yeah. of it. I've, some of the like, quotes that like, you drop with her in your book <sighs> and the idea that you share is, is it Ursula that says who's closer to us in time, the dead or the unborn? Is that Ursula? Yes, yes, like, yes. <sighs> And what's fantastic is Gepser said something similar um, in one of his his journal entries because um, his his sister had had died at a very early age and it left an impression on him of her kind of being present with him in in a way throughout his life. Um, and this relationship with the living and the dead uh, is 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 also an important theme for for what this a perspectivity means in a more spiritual dimension, the presence of the ancestors, but also the presence of the unborn. Uh, and so Gebser makes a very interesting remark, very similar, about um, you know grapes turning into wine and turning into a different form, and then just sort of a meditation on you know if if the dead are present in, in another way, are, are the unborn present in another way too? Um, sort of really trying to get to that in a poetic communication. That's an aside. Uh, but Le Guin's work, I think, really expresses what this aperspectival protagonist could be in terms of her story and her narratives. I think Always Coming Home or The Lathe of Heaven are expressing this. I had a great conversation with, um, with Rune Soup and Gordon White talking about the Earthsea trilogy, mm. which I haven't read, but it's more of uh, um, Gordon's roadhouse. And he was really kind of selling it to me and and he sold it to me, but I just haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, but, you know, those are some examples. I think um, another concrete example you can get and read on, over a weekend is probably Jeff Vandermeer's uh, uh, Annihilation. Mm. Uh, and I, mentioned, I think I mentioned this towards the back of, of my own book. Um, but there's a way in which we are trying to um, render transparent things to their ineffability. There's, there's a particular moment towards the end of the book Um Vandermeer has been called a, a a weird ecologist or weird. He's, he's like a vein of weird literature, right? Um, but it's a kind of weird ecology in that the non-human world is showing a, an aspect of itself to us, right? Mm. Uh, that the anthropocentric uh, is being deconstructed, and it's not just a nihilism, but there's a kind of sublimity, ineffability that opens up mm. in meeting the non-human other, and then seeing a kind of um, a mirror in ourselves, the unknowability in ourselves. And I mention this because there's a beautiful passage towards the end of Vandermeer's book where he's describing, um, the protagonist is describing these tidal pools and these really cool looking uh, starfish. And the protagonist has this moment of like vertigo, um, having had a few glasses of wine or something before going out to the tidal pools and and looking down into the water and like losing a sense of sky and 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 water and then losing a sense of you know not knowing like she's a marine biologist or a biologist in the in in the uh, novel 
And she knows the taxonomy. She knows the categorization. She knows this thing as a scientist, what it is. But in that moment, it reveals itself in its unknowability to her. And through that, there's a kind of communion in that. she It reveals the unknowability of herself. Like she doesn't know what this is before her. She doesn't even know what she is. And there's this openness, right? This, this irrationality that Gebser uses as one of these expressive characteristics of the integral mm. that is able to shine forth, right? As you mentioned earlier, there's this some um, creative openness to things when you kind of begin to settle into this and work with it. Yeah. And it's that kind of mysterious openness, that ineffable openness mm. that reaches some of these spiritual qualities. Yeah. But I, I see this in, in so much in our, our turn right now to the non-human world and a lot of the art that's doing that. And Vandermeer is a great example. You know, they call it the non-human turn mm. in academia. The, the works of Haruki Murakami speak to me as well, the magical realism in that. Mm. I also just read the book, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoet, who uh, was written by Nick, someone or other, who wrote Cloud Atlas. Um, yeah, similar, similar sensation. And it, I, f I find it to be very, very nurturing, very rejuvenating. And so I want to hone in a bit. So it's worth mentioning that the art really is one of the easiest bridges in, in, into this experience. And it's just so important because of that. Um, I'm getting a sense that as we're speaking, that there is like a holistic version of all of these structures of consciousness, that if we can transcend and include them, that we do get to this integral state of rightness somehow is how it's feeling to me. And the sense that I have right now is that we're really lacking in the mythic and the magical. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing that's a useful frame for me as to what I'm trying to engender with forming these new types of collective community structures for people to rediscover each other, to experience ritual and to recreate a living myth together. And the balance here is is obviously we don't want to uh, throw out the the magic of the, the present time and this kind of hyper real state that we find ourselves in, but merging those two together. And I feel it's really important. Like it's imperative <laughs> what I'm talking about here. And it's like, I can feel it in my gut. It's not like a, a nice to have, it's like a need to have. And mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, I find it's, it, God, it's almost this blood and soil feeling that like uh, the fascists kind of touch on and that really moves a lot of the alt-right movement of also a return to this same feeling. And if it's not seen and channeled the right way, then it gets warped in some strange political manifestations. So I just wanted to presence that. Um, yeah. I wanted to, uh, yeah, I feel that. I feel that with you. I feel the kinship with you and I, I feel excited to explore that. Uh, more together and, and with, with a lot of the people I'm connecting with at the moment. But I want to take it beyond the intellectual and into, mm -hmm. if we can, through the digital from afar, which I, I'm having a, an inkling that we can. The edge of my thinking is, all right, how do we create these experiences? Um, what about you? Have you got, ha have you got a sense of, of how we can bring these elements back into our, into our ways of being? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, like you, I feel it's it's sing singularly important to think about and not only think about, but learn how to embody. Mm. And I'll, I'll say, you know, 
at least in, in, in Gepser's understanding, uh, he says, you know, we cannot, we cannot embody integral consciousness if we're not concretizing it. Yes. It has to be through the concrete, not through the abstract. And a lot of what I think integral consciousness looks like is a remediation, a regeneration of what we in this history of consciousness has looked like a kind of increasing remoteness and uh, increasing alienation and animization from participating in the world in the spiritual whole, the the, the loss of being a place-based human being, mm. right? And, and being in this kind of, I mean, we, we've, we've created a wonderful civilization, but it's, it's very abstract. We don't have a sense of place in the same way that, as you mentioned, the magic and the mythic um, indigenous thinking is very place-based. And right at the beginning of your book, you, you're quoting Tyson Yunkaporta. Mm. I was just listening to you, um, a conversation with him, uh, an older one from Rebel Wisdom, where mm. he was talking about that. Indigenous thinking is, is very place-based and situational. And first of all, um, we, as Gebser says, we have gone through this process of severing ourselves through the mental, through the overemphasis on the mental, overemphasis on the spatialization, abstraction, colonization, quite literally of human beings, right? This is this we're talking about the destruction of, of human lives, and then also the destruction of our own histories, mm. because um, the, the cultures that did this have lost their own rootedness, right? And like you're mentioning, when you when you lose connection with the magic and the mythic, it's going to continue to show up. Like the structures are ever present, but it doesn't mean they're ever present in a good way. Um, especially if you are, you're doing a good job at severing your connection from them and working with them, et cetera. So they show up in very unhealthy expressions. And part of his analysis of 20th century Europe, he says we, we oscillate now between the deficient perspectival world of alienation and atomization and then a very unhealthy version of magic and mythic where we, we oscillate to like collective activities like mass movements that are intensified and eruptive and uncontrollable and, mm. and violent and destructive and even self-destructive we just oscillate back and forth yeah. between those two interesting on and january the 6th is a, is like yeah. a modern day eruption of that that's right? a great example of yeah. that um if you listen to what a lot of the Q folks say, um, there's a great article in, in Jacobin by Daniel Bessner and Amberly Frost describing uh, how, you know, if you listen to their actual why they joined and what they were feeling when they joined this movement was a sense of belonging, a sense yeah. of importance, a sense of community, a sense of meaning in their lives. I mean, that's a real, that's a big tell, right? That we are missing all of those things to make something so impoverished as, as this QAnon thing, um, deeply attractive. So yes, oh, I think- some work to do then, Jeremy, because- Oh Yeah. <laughs> The integral movement is like the placeholder of that. We've both been drawn to it. We both broadly identify as integralists, but like we've got, I feel like we've got to up our game a little bit and kind of yeah. step outside of the intellectual boundaries and, and and literally rediscover one another in our rawness and our realness and and see that magical mythic component and call it into being through. For me, what looks like coming together in 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 terms of inner work and outer work and you know integral life practice sure it makes me <laughs> want to vomit when i hear that like tm it like let's charge two thousand dollars for the it's the good stuff though like like it, it is that same quality but yeah i really feel a a, a passion and urgency around that because it's tempting for me to like and this is where i'm i'm, I'm going to enjoy concretizing 
where we go in, in our dialogue because we can we can uh, sort of flow in the, the the poetry and the diaphanous, but then there is a sense of 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 urgency for me in terms of political ecological movement around this, mm. and I know there is for you too, and that's what I want to get into because something that I so much enjoy about how you show up as a thinker and, and, a, and a writer is that you really do have the f- foot in both worlds. You are a progressive politically minded thinker and 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 really committed to progressing the cause on a pragmatic level and um that's a wonderful thing so let's jump into that a little bit and maybe sure. a, a nice bridge for that is uh, the ideas of cosmo localism which we've both been resonating with lately but maybe first maybe you could tell us a little bit about why michael brooks lights you up so much oh, because yeah. i was introduced to him through you and brent cooper uh just before he passed on, which is which is sad, and I know that he holds a very special place in your heart and is as uh, potentially a symbol of uh, change in in a progressive, integral political way. So maybe that's a doorway in. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question, and yes, for sure, Michael was a, a dear friend, uh, and, and and a recent friend. He became a dear friend very recently in the past few years, mm. uh, and, and actually during the pandemic, we we had a chance to talk more. Um, maybe because he, he was, we were all both, we're all at home, you know, we're all just at home and and talking and thinking about things and watching the world just unravel uh, and wondering what we can really do about it. But I think, you know, there's a kind of indescribable kinship I, I, I've I felt with him uh, as, as a, just a, a spiritual brother, right? Mm, um, and, and I think he may have felt the same because he was very drawn to having conversations about the spiritual and having conversations about, you know, First of all, his position, his background was with integral theory, and he did vipassana practice, and then he was doing, um, he was he had a spiritual background, right? And he had a spiritual practice, and he he recognized that as being important. But he was also really, really rooted and grounded in understanding material politics, material history, mm-hmm. economics, and how not not being reductive about it, but how those things shape our own subjectivity, right? Mm-hmm. How those things matter, like treating people with decency, allowing people to have a roof over their heads, allowing people to have medicine, you know, like really decent human, even heart-centric compassion for other human beings. This is what really what his emphasis was. Um, so what I, I think what I saw in Michael that I really loved was was that balance between he could go there, he can make fun, he could eviscerate certain personalities, and 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 he was hilarious and really funny. But he also had that sharp mind, uh, and he also had a big heart, just in terms of like why do we do this? We do this so people can live decently with each yeah. other, right? Like be one of his one of his uh, lines from. Uh, well, the past year or so was uh, be be ruthless, be ruthless to institutions, be kind to people, mm. and he was always he was maybe innately an integral thinker in the sense that he was intellectually curious. He was always reading, so he was reading the material analysis, a Marxist analysis of what's going on in the world. But he was also reading integral theory and interested in regenerative culture and aware of that. You know, in the in in the 
in the muck and the mire of getting engaged in political discourse on the internet or offline and building, rebuilding the labor movement, whatever he was focusing on, uh, there is this larger context that we participate in that often goes into the, the, the aspects of human meaning making, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things he pushed back, um, on other leftists about was you're not going to get to, let's say Jordan Peterson's followers. If you don't acknowledge the reason why people are drawn to him is that they're deeply alienated and they're searching for meaning, right? And, and to search for meaning is very human. So he had a very holistic and integral approach to his politics and to his um, journalism, his political journalism that was very beautiful and I think very of, of like mind, right? I can so that's see why, why I think you yeah. guys might have had quite a strong bond or, and, and almost a, a, a polarity there because he represents, at least publicly, outwardly, a bit more of the... I don't know, pragmatic, grounded left, but on the inside, he, he was still very much connected to the uh, esoteric energies. And perhaps yeah, you're yeah. The, the, the slight reversal of that, and the two of you probably complement each other quite nicely. I would say that's very accurate, yeah, mm. because, I mean, just the little... you you know about my background. I've been in the integral community for a long time. I've been like career wise, I've been very comfortable, like being an author about this stuff and going to conferences about it. Um, I don't have a, another public facing, you know, more secular oriented talking about political discourse self, but I was very aware of how that was important. Yeah. So yes, I think we have like a, we had like a little yin yang approach yeah. why we, we came together. Um, and, and, what was missing in a lot of the discourse in integral communities and circles was a grounded material understanding of what was going on, right? And I think that's really important. And it's not going to, it's not scary. Um, if it's if it's if it's going to challenge us, it's going to challenge us in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think we necessarily uh, need to give up some of the greater aspirations that are in the integral movement or in spiritual communities. Um, if we're going to go down the path of studying, you know, the, the history of the labor movement from a leftist perspective or a radical perspective, yeah. I think they work well together. Um, and I always say this because some folks are pushed back and they go, well, integral isn't about being left on the left or the right. So aren't you being like, isn't that oxymoronic? Hmm. And I would say, you know, the, the left isn't about being a polarity. It's about, can we transform the world and make it better? You know, how do we understand that? How do we get there? How do we build a different kind of society? I mean, if we keep it at that basic level of, of inquiry, then I think we can understand what the left is doing. Even when we see hyperpolarization and um, fragmentation and all the problems that the left has, like there's a genuine interest to make this world better somehow. Hmm. And I think adding in this layer of consciousness, adding in, in this sort of cultural phenomenology with Gepser or integral theory, the kind of intellectual curiosity, adding in the spiritual dimension, that just balances it out even more so. So I would even say, and I think this, like one of our, one of our last few conversations, we were talking about how, like, I don't know if the integral movement is necessarily going to be going onto the left, right? But the left could could use integral thinking and spiritual practice to yeah. make it healthier and more effective. Yeah, well, that bifurcation that happened with, with Marx almost, it's taken like, you know, 150 years to start to come together. It's pretty fascinating. And we need that to happen. It's, it's a, there's friction and conflict in that space. But as Michael says, like that, it just needs to happen. Those two things need to be one and the same thing, or you don't have an integral movement. And 
gosh, this thought of like, what is an integral right? It's like, that's like right on the edge of like, can I hold it all together? Because I think really, if, you, if, if well, my take on it at least, if you get to that integral stage, we're not talking, it's a different kind of left. It's a whole, it's not what it was. That's just a symbol pointing towards something. But really, you are able to integrate the values of individuality and, uh, you know, respect for tradition and what conservative values are with equality and opportunity for all and ecological practice. Those two things have been split because of uh, arguably some kind of, I don't don't want to say error, but it's like you can bring them together. That can be one Mm -hmm. thing. So yeah. I would say that turn that, that seeing them as one thing again, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Jason Snyder's work, we Mm -hmm. we were talking a little bit about it. Um, uh, that this movement towards localism and homesteading um, on, on the surface could be seen as, well, isn't that kind of a move away from cosmopolitanism and internationalism? But it's really not because I think one of the things we talked about, or you mentioned the word cosmolocalism. Yeah. Um, I, I think this needs to be explored more. It's, it's in no way a mature idea. It's, it's a brilliant idea with um, some good solid theory and some really good initial observations in terms of like, here's how it's showing up in the world right now. But I think bringing those together is orthogonal to that whole left-right dichotomy, yes. right? It's it's doing something, it's it's veering to another direction. And I would bring up Bruno Latour to talk about this. Um, he has a great little book called Down to Earth. Mm. And he talks about the sort of tension between, on the one hand, we have this oscillation between globalization, uh, moving towards, you know, uh, uh, open markets and extractive economies and the global the neoliberal globalization process that's been going on for half a century or so. And on the other hand, we have a reaction to that, which is, okay, let's go back to localism. Let's be, you know, let's build a wall. It explains Trumpism. So we have a reaction to that. Yes. So that's like one spectrum, um, two ends that oscillate, right? Those are the tensions of this old world. It's arc. And he's saying with the climate crisis, with, with what we would call planetary culture, with this move towards Gaian systems and understanding um, these bioregional regenerative principles that mm. we've been interested in, it's orthogonal to that. And, and Latour calls it the terrestrial. Mm. And he said, literally, the book is called Down to Earth because we're all literally going to have to learn how to feed each other <laughs> on this planet in the process of, uh, if we take it seriously, like what Jen Bandela is saying, civilizational collapse, yep. ecological collapse, we're already in it. So there's something orthogonal to these tensions and whether or not that collapse is happening, the process of globalization is antithetical, right? We have to build a new type of, and this is, I think, to link it back to Gepser, there's a new way of relating to each other that is economically more resonant with integrality. And I do think it has to do with moving back towards a common centric society mm-hmm. that is bioregional and cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's our center of gravity. That's where the integral consciousness starts to get efficient, right? In terms of innovating, not only the arts, which we saw in the last century and continue to see today, but now that concretization process is also the economics, uh, the architecture, the sciences. Like, you know, uh, Leonard Schlein has a great book called Art and Physics, talking about how, like, the artists sort of get a sense of this new mentality that's emerging. Marshall McLuhan talks about that. Gepser, in a sense, talks about that. 
Um, so I think for us today, the harder work is is translating these brilliant philosophers and artists and poets who kind of grokked that this is where we were headed as a world uh, and finding ways to embody that in how we live together. Mm. Like, like that, that's, the, that's the foundation, I think, of Michael Brooks' work, which is, you know, unless we get what's going on materially, economically, and those pressures... We're never going to get a better world, hmm. right? If we're still using extractive, extractive economic system and the forms of sense making that go with it and reify it and reinforce it, we're not going to get you know a wonderful distributed future. So, how do we make a different kind of economy, a different type of culture, effective and efficient? And I think you know Hansi talks about that too, like outcompete in a certain sense mm -hmm. the, this collapsing and dying world, mm -hmm. because it is coming to an end. And um, that's one of the things Latour talks about too, which is very a very kind of um, um, astute perspectival observation mm -hmm. that the trajectory of of neoliberalism and globalization is is out of this world, right? The idea is further and further and further abstraction to the point where, well, okay, if we've extracted and, and devoured the earth, we'll move on to another planet. Mm. Um, the countercurrent to that is this coming down to earth and finding ways to regenerate, to heal, to decolonize, and obviously to find new ways to live together in a very material embodied sense, literally in the dirt, hands in the dirt, right? Mm. And I know we're both interested in that, in that kind of regenerative turn, yeah. which is why, like, you, could, you said it was a buzzword, but it's also a great buzzword in that it, it really um, uh, brings together so much of what needs to happen under an umbrella terminology that is very useful, right? Instead yes. of going, okay, what is a perspectivity? We have so many more words for it now, actually, yeah. and many different dimensions of it now. Mm, yeah, that's really, I'm really getting a lovely synthesis of this as we talk. I, I, I embrace buzzwords, by the way. I think they're fantastic. <laughs> but like, if we can further congeal the integral movement with this idea of cosmolocalism, and we can each become ambassadors for literal farmers markets for local, what well, I mean, where I come to is, is just back to pods and collectives which are these is this small groups of people that share these intentions and these feelings that can process what's going on inside of themselves together and then act as little cosmo local units of political economic change and uh also what, what i'm most interested in is that to cultivate a culture you need a group of people to to hold the frequency of the aperspectival yeah, you need a group that's staying in that resonance together. And this is where like the, the idea of a Sangha comes in. So it's this combination of a spiritual, political, economic unit that the first part of that really is, is helping us press pause a little bit and going, okay, you're a product of 5,000 years of civilization trauma, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years of familial trauma that you've had and unless you've gone through the integral psychology stage of really cleaning up with a group of supportive people then you're going to keep perpetuating that and that's okay you're not the only one i'm exactly like that as well and yeah the climate's burning but until we start to really sit with what's happening in our own bodies and feel safe in that we're just going to recreate that again and that links in with the earth right because that's literally what helps us calm down and so for me, it, it comes back to this beautiful relational practice of um, being present with each other. 
Mm-hmm. And what brings us together is the inspiration of the poetry and the literature and the Gebserian ideas and the art that we're touching on. That's that, that's the Eros amidst it all, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, mm, yeah, I'm drawn to you like a magnet. And then the bit that I find is is difficult and isn't spoken to so much, which is why I keep kind of bringing it up in these forums that I'm in, is that like, okay, we're here. And, and, and how does it feel? Do you feel a bit off, a bit edgy? Well, that's okay. I wonder why. Let's explore what that looks like. And are you feeling seen? Perhaps your perhaps your personality and your ego is longing for more status. Well, that's okay. Mine is a bit as well. What does that feel like? You know, and this this humility, um, which yeah, again, I think Michael embodied that as well. Like that that human element of like, I think that kind of Jewish sense of humor is a, is a beautiful uh, example of, of that of that that humanness. And uh, yeah, I'm quite excited by that idea because there's a practical set of tools around that kind of cosmolocal approach that we can start to implement and iterate and learn from each other and form. I keep wanting to create loose networks. I keep ending every podcast. With like, <laughs> yes, we're going to create the network. And then I go back to my normal life and I'm like, I got to go shopping and make sure my girlfriend's all right and meditate. And it's like, that's the, that's the stretch and the joy of cosmolocalism, isn't it? Of like the present and the connected. Um, I want, how, how do those two spheres feel for you right now and how you're showing up in your work and life and relationships? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, for, for the most part, I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm from New York, so I'm a bit of a transplant in Florida. Okay. So this is a bit of a satellite for me from uh, my longer term friendships. Um, but then also like meeting you and, and going to integral conferences, there's this, wide network of people that I am very connected with and I feel very connected with here. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting, um, like uh, reading and talking with Jason Snyder and interacting with the homestead and localization movement. And I feel a kind of connection actually, even being very far apart, like, okay, I'm going to be setting up a box garden soon and, and thinking about like permaculture and rewilding your backyard and like what to pay attention to. Um, and what to what to kind of do in, in terms of a daily practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I feel very like intimate with with people who are not immediately bioregionally local with me. Yeah. So that's uh, that's how. I, and then also the other thing, right? The cosmopolitan aspect is like that. Michael Brooks brings up and brought up quite a bit um, in his writing and in his in his uh, his show was like a. Um, a heartfelt intimacy with a lot of these projects that are around the, that are around the world that are attempting to experiment, right? And I think that's the end, the other side. the The cosmo and the cosmo localism is: I'm situated somewhere, you're situated somewhere. We're using this technology, this peer to peer technology, as a way of not because it's tech, but as a way to communicate with each other and share notes and to share sense making and to give each other feedback and to always be. Um, offering that kind of um, uh, mutual learning, right? That that Nora Bateson talks about mm. in community, and that can be immediate and local, and maybe ought to be more if if we can begin to shift. I think out of necessity that will start to happen. Mm. But the other side of that, I think, is is having this distributed network of folks who are connected online, um, and being able to con- continue that kind of communication, that mutual learning process, because mm-hmm. it is an open-ended process. How do we live bioregionally, integrally, et cetera, et cetera? We don't have a definite answer. We have some orienting practices and skills 
and we don't know how things are going to play out in terms of the climate, in terms of our local bioregion. Like just last week, or no, a few days ago, uh, Piney Point here in Tampa Bay, Florida, uh, had this massive like phosphorus leak in one of these like I've read pools. About that. Yeah, yeah, it was making the news, and, and they're saying it's potentially an ecological disaster. Mm. Um, so we don't know what's going to play out in our in our backyards uh, necessarily in our our immediate conditions. Um, but having that sense that we are part of a planetary whole, that for me is important. Like Bruce Clark calls it the planetary imaginary. Yeah. And uh, I really love that word because mm. it's like, what is this shared sense of the whole that I feel that I am participating in with you or with anybody, anybody on the planet is quite an encompassing term, but it, it's not just a cerebral one. It's, it's a felt sense. Yeah. It is, it's quite it visceral is a, and quite profound. Right. And right. Important. And, and I, I like this idea of like weaving these two strands of DNA of going deeper into the local, but then, really finding i'm not going to find a fully complete identity structure with which can motivate me forward towards uh a more integral future by just connecting with the land here because i don't have 60,000 years of connection to australian flora and fauna i'm an implant anyway i was born in england and so where i'm going to find my identity that is going to nurture me is more in this network that is being created, it's profoundly important to me and profoundly mm. sacred. Um, mediated through technology, it's really it's quite psychedelic when you think about it. But mm-hmm. it's happening. It's here. We're in it. Yeah, and weaving those two threads together, I, I think that strikes me. It's the way forward. Yeah, weaving the global and the local together, uh, just just holding the two simultaneously. Yeah open-ended i don't have solutions either but as a practice right that we can share notes on and we can practice together and we can practice together in community with others uh, as we try to innovate this and listen to what what is going on in the world right like again we don't know as we saw with with the pandemic we don't know how things are going to play out necessarily and what will need to be uh, what will need to come forward first right we saw a deep existential sense of, of, of anxiety in terms of what could collapse and um, uh, resource supply chains being too linear and all of these things really bubbled up last year and they continue to in a more recent uh, that, that canal um, Suez Canal thing that happened which is kind of I know we, we memed it and we made it kind of a funnier thing, but it's also kind of like that could turn, yeah. take down the whole world economy. That's not good. We shouldn't mm-hmm. build things that way. So there's this sense, and this is something I brought up to you in a clubhouse session about Kim Stanley Robinson's article in The New Yorker, uh-huh. uh, that the coronavirus is rewriting our imaginations, that, mm-hmm. that we are, again, in that felt sense of this planetary imaginary. The whole is falling apart. The whole is at stake, but... Also, the flip side of that is that we're part of a whole. Like there is a whole world that we are participating in that we haven't really been paying attention to. And it's interrelated and it's interconnected. And really these planetary dynamics are very important. And this is, it's, it's showing up maybe negatively first as an anxiety, but I think we have the opportunity to experiment with how to express it positively and constructively, right? Creatively. Mm. I think this is like maybe like another line from earlier about like, what are we doing? And like, like that, that creative expression of the planetary that is, that is positive, constructive, generative, we're experimenting with that, right? 
we don't have an easy answer to that. It's process centered and it's yeah. open ended. But I think that's an orientation that is at least giving me a sense of meaningfulness in like what I'm doing, right? Um, and we're searching for meaning and we're acknowledging that too. Yeah. But we're grounding ourselves in the bioregional, economic, et cetera, et cetera, the material history of things. Yeah. Integral is, is, is in the process of, of finding its way into material history, as mm. it were. So mm. let's figure that out together. Put, yeah. That's, and that right there is the planetary crisis to planetary culture. I love the framing Pinchbeck had in, in How Soon Is Now, which I thought was just a, a brilliant book. I recommend it to everyone. It was like a punch in the yeah. gut, but it was also book. like you know, this metamorphosis feeling. And oh, I love the way you just framed that, Jeremy, of like, hey, we're having a world crisis. We're a world, right? And it's like, yeah, we are. That's that's beautiful. It's intense because it's a lot to realize how connected we are with each other because we've done a great job at siloing out. But it's also, there's, there's, there's a lot of power there. I, um, yeah. So the, the something I want to um, I want to ask you, perhaps maybe the last question I'll put to you is this sense of um, I want to return to a chapter in your book where this beautiful idea of um, you talk about Petrarch's ascent on Mount Vento, which is uh, this moment in the 14th century, I think it is when. This character goes to the top of this mountain and and really, for the first time, grocks the perspectival and is like this symbolic moment of a shift from the unperspectival to the perspectival. Um, is that a is that a fair summation of that yeah, moment? Yeah. So, what then? What what what's the twenty twenty one meta modern equivalent of that? Well, what is that moment? Like, what does that look like now? Yeah. You know, I, I would just say it's, 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 um, what we were just talking about, this anxiety about the whole breaking down. The, it's, it's an, I mean, with, with Petrarch too, he's torn. He's, he's, he's looking back, he's thinking back to his, uh, his earlier years and into his time in, uh, in Italy. And then he's looking ahead uh, and he's thinking about the, uh, uh, St. Augustine and Bible passages. Uh, he's wrestling with space, the concretization of space. I think we're doing that, and we've been doing that this year, this sense of, okay, we're all interconnected and we can flee from it. We can run from it. We can build the walls and pretend, uh, continue the trajectory, which is a sort of uh, civilizational suicide of pretending that that's not happening, right? And America's great and we can keep burning our oil and climate change is, 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 uh, just one person's truth, but not our truth or whatever. Um, or we could face that. And mm. I, I think collectively we're being challenged with that right now. I can't give you like a concrete example of a person, like the Mount Ventoux equivalent is like all of us right now Maybe it's are, are turning towards. Maybe it's clubhousing with Gebserian <laughs> scholars. Maybe. Um, Although I think there's a lot of, I, I love our clubhouse sessions, but I think there's quite a lot of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like talking about a particular bro, stream Silicon Valley, <laughs> um, Elon Musk kind of stuff. So, but, but I think people coming together and going like, how do we build this? 
I think is that that real. And what you're saying, like, hey, I'm traumatized too. I've had to deal with living in civilization. I've had my own, like, I'm alienated and atomized, right? But we're let's let's face this together. I think that's that kind of collective act of of um, turning towards, in Latour's words, towards Gaia, right? Or facing the terrestrial, coming down to Earth. Whenever we make that practice. Um, when it's transparent to the planetary, right? Like, again, like, I don't want us to confuse localization with a retreat. Localization, um, it has to be transparent to the other aspect yes. of cosmopolitanism. Whenever we do that and be courageous about it and take that leap, I think we're doing what Petrarch did in, in climbing that mountain, deciding to go go up that mountain and see and really see. For us, it's not seeing as, with the visual maybe it's a kind of a whole body thing like mm. it's seeing it's hearing it's listening to others right hansi in the listening society mm. um there's an attuning to the whole that that we're working on here and it's um gebser has a beautiful word i won't unpack it because who knows it's difficult to conceptualize but he calls it um removing from sense directed thinking to senseful a wearing mm. and there's a kind of relaxing and openness um uh a simultaneity in it, a natural simultaneity in that, in that, that I can't exactly get my conceptual thinking around and yet it feels like a state of poise, right? Mm. And we're, we're humans, so we're not going to always do that. And yet to lean into that and to return to that and to return to being present in the state of this whole world, right? To being open. I think like trusting in that, bringing that forward more, that'll, that'll be a, a, a crucial ally for us and a mm. crucial strength for us senseful a wearing that's beautiful what the the my edge with this is to relax into it i still get yeah. really activated i can feel it in my body now like a tension but an ex like a use stress like here is a, a moment, a conversation, a person, a potential to hold it all, the political, the spiritual, literature. And I recognize in myself quite a lot of repression going on usually of like, no, compartmentalize because you can't do or look at it all at once. But when it comes up, it's like, but then what I want to do is I want to get better at relaxing into that. Because when I look at, if I look at a Gebser and Aurobindo and I feel like they've gotten used to that space and mm -hmm. it actually brings more calm to their system rather than more activation. And I guess that's where I'm hoping to grow into more as an integral thinker. So it's a good practice. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a state of like a Gebser uses that word to poise, like mm -hmm. a state of poise. Um, but in, he also says in the end, everything is simple. And I think there is something radically simple and even the word radical root origin <laughs> originary about about it in that mm. uh what he describes is the openness of the open world right it's intimate to us there there's a there's a natural state there's an innate state it's it's in us to have this or to be this mm. right there's um it's a kind of ontological realism in this that we're already living and that it's more complex when Again, like like me, I do this all the time. Like, how do I hold all these things together? Um, go to the complex conversations to articulate it. And yet there's this principle in this, which is everything is open. Uh, subject, object, all the disciplines, all the different things going on. There is an alive wholeness that we participate in 
everything's actually open. We, if we can relax into that a little bit mm. as a starting place, we don't have to be metacognitive thinkers. We could just be like, I don't know, like anything, a gardener. You could be planting tomatoes in the solar punk future and everything is open. You don't have to be, you know, surfing. I don't even know what we're, what everything we're doing, which is really fun and, yeah. and cerebral as well as it is like exploring the heart and exploring community that's all great, but it's also like just a being in the world in an yeah. open way. And yeah. to me, like that's the through line, like, like, okay, what do the Bauhaus people do? It was really simple. It's like, okay, you know, there's no borders between disciplines. Uh, what is like somebody like Neri Oxman doing right now at MIT? Same thing, you know, all the disciplines are alive and interrelated. Everything's alive. Everything's open. What if we live like that? Mm. Like what if we, um, bring ourselves back to that again and again, like we would bring ourselves back to the breath. What happens? What transforms? What shows up? You know? Mm, yeah. Feels like an exciting liminal space to be in together. Before we we close up, I want to have a go at pronouncing um, this word. <sighs> These beautiful, long German words. This word <laughs> means the phenomenology of becoming consciousness. I mean, does it get any cooler than that? I'm going to try and murder it here. Bewerwurdespong phenomenology. That's fine. On that graceful and uh, terribly culturally insensitive note, I would like to close this little thread in the, the greater weave of integral aperspectival mycelium magic that we've touched on here and... Um, encourage everyone to if they feel called to check out jeremy's work and the invitation into a place beyond time that uh Gebser presents to us i think it's really rejuvenating it's profound um is there anything that you want to uh talk about any upcoming courses or a next publication that we can be excited to get involved in well always tune in and thank you joe this has been Wonderful. As as I expected, we'd have a great conversation together. Yeah. As we've already been having great conversations together. Um, but I would yeah, just check out uh, mutations. You can go to mutations.blog. Usually, I mean, there's links to my Patreon there and whatever upcoming episodes happen to be uh, coming up soon. So I, I do have a few that are slated, like one with Andrew McLuhan talking about media studies and media ecology. Cynthia Bourgeau, who is kind of on the Christian contemplative path and is really been working with Gepser with with her own um, esoteric practice and contemplative practice. Uh, really interesting work there. And there'll be more. There'll be more, a lot more uh, of uh, conversations this year. So definitely tune in there. Join me on Patreon. I do uh, a, a Zoom call every week with patrons, on usually on Wednesdays. We're calling it the Pop-Up Integral Studies Salon uh, or Integral Studies Zoom group, whatever. Mm -hmm. But we usually have uh, Wednesday sessions, so those are really fun. And it's it's usually folks who are, I'm in the middle of a Gepser course right now. But um, if you are interested in catching up and joining that, you can certainly reach out to me and we'll, we'll make we'll make it happen. Yeah, you have uh, an online course, which I imagine yeah. you, you might do again in the future as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, this is the third consecutive year of that of that happening, and um, it's been really wonderful. Like every year, it's it's a new it's a new crowd. And a lot of them are, are integralists in some form or another. And it's interesting to see how 
um, intrigued they are by Gepser. Like mm. again, that kind of like this is doing something different. I want to f- find out what it is. I, I hear that all the time from students, and they're all brilliant. They're all like Chinese medicine painters, mm. dancers, architects. It's like really interesting who comes up, who shows up for the course. That must be so much fun for you to be at the nexus of. And what a, what an amazing text to be rediscovering and teaching in different ways. That must you must be growing each time you do it and getting new insights along the way. Maybe <laughs> is there something about Gebser in the last few weeks that you've just like realized anew? Is there anything you'd want to to leave us with in that regard? Uh, I feel like I already did just from like, you know, the Bauhaus thing mm. that's been recently, like, um, that came up in the context of some of the, the conversations we've been having. Yeah. Um, and even, even with like, how do we teach Gepser was one of the themes today. Like, like some folks are like, what do we, what do we do with this? Like, do we just go teach Gepser to people or, or like, how do we communicate this? And the insight, the generative insight was it actually brought in Tyson Young Caporta's thinking about like play space. It's very situational and relational. Hmm. And if it's not touching on where somebody is living, then don't bother bringing in the terminology. If it speaks to them, if it helps like unpack what they're already experiencing, then a, like you, you aren't just using this as concepts and B like, then maybe there's a bridge there. Right. Hmm. So that was, that was like today's conversation for instance. But um, yeah, the Bauhaus track is like, I don't want to keep going on about it because I, I totally it's it's been it's been an obsession for the past like week or so uh-huh. for me to just um, analogize integral designing spaces like we're talking about potential mm-hmm. spaces. Um, uh, uh, I don't want to. Okay, I'm going to say it very crudely. What if we could build a a Bauhaus for regenerative integral culture in terms mm. of not an elite school, but thinking in terms of design and and crafting a, a community space that. Uh, encourages that sort of openness and presence just like thinking about it in terms of structure and design right in ecology and different feedback systems and uh, the interrelatability of different disciplines like I've just got some gears going about this that's all I'll say Um, the last thing would be working on a new book but um, don't hold your breath it's it's going to be a few few months out unless it comes out very quickly which is also possible but it's called Fragments of an Integral Futurism. Mm. And it's very much a follow-up from seeing through the world uh, and, and really kind of looking, A, at the, at the deep past, sort of uh, a, a fresh look at our, our Paleolithic ancestors from more Gibsarian lens, and also looking into temporics and how we can reclaim a sense of the future, maybe in the, along the lines of what we've been talking about wow. here. That sounds great. I'm keen to see that unfold. I'm so glad we're on such similar trajectories. And thank you for leaving us with one last grand Bauhaus idea to conceive and, and, and chew upon. Um, really appreciate how you're moving through the world, Jeremy. And look forward to more of it, my friend. Likewise, Joe. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. Show notes are available online at www.joelightfoot.org, where you can also find more information about my book, A Collective Blooming. Music by Johnny Eagle. Until next time, be well, my friends.